Matthew chapter 7. We're closing in on the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been such a blessing uh, to me as we've gone through that. Uh, I want to acknowledge the contributions as I have from time to time of men like Al Mohler and John MacArthur and Martin Lloyd-Jones and others who have aided me and I know aided you in your study uh, of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Powerful sermon, and I'm almost sad to be moving on past it. I had a great discussion this past week with a friend of mine. He wanted to tell me about a recent conversation that he had had with a co-worker of sorts uh, as they were warming up on the range for a round of golf. My friend said this guy had always been a little bit of a smart aleck, and so he didn't usually take him very seriously and usually didn't pay much attention to him, but the guy was always giving him a hard time. But this guy got my friend's attention when he said, I want to ask you a serious question. And again, my friend thought he was messing around like usual, but then this guy said, no, really, I mean it. I've got a serious question for you. And he looked right at my friend, and he said, What happens to us when we die? It opened the door, of course, for my friend who's a believer to share with this guy who he had never really taken very seriously before. And he told me this story just this week on Friday, and I might have thought it was coincidence that he would pull me into his office and tell me this story on the very week that I was preaching about this particular message. But then our Father loves to do things like this. We face a lot of questions in life, but none more profound than this. What happens to me when I die? Of course, when we think about that question in the light of Holy Scripture, we move from the merely profound to the pinnacle as we face what is absolutely the most important question anyone who has ever lived or ever will live faces. That is, how can I make sure I go to heaven when I die? Because if heaven and hell are real places, as the Bible teaches, I sure don't want to go to hell, and I really want to go to heaven. Indeed, we are all going to spend eternity someplace. Where will that be for you? The older I get the faster it seems that life goes by. I understand better these days than ever before what James, mean, what James means when he says, you know, your life is but a mist that appears for a little while and then is gone, vanishes. Our time here compared with eternity is as nothing. And listen, just getting real here, the hard truth is, is not that we all die, but that we will all live forever, somewhere. So to say the decision, the choice you and I make about how one gets to heaven is important is to vastly understate the gravity of that decision and what is meant by eternal. The Bible unequivocally reveals that there are two destinations and two results. Hell and eternal punishment or heaven and eternal joy. So clearly, well, clearly if we, if we assume that no one really actually wants to go to hell, clearly the question that cuts through all the clutter is, which is the right way to heaven? And Jesus, in John 14, 6, answers that question when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Well-known verse. Much-beloved verse. 
but a verse about which a great many modern Christians aren't so sure. You may be surprised to learn, in fact, that according to a recent study, 66%, that's almost two out of three if you're doing the math, of American Christians say there are many religions that can lead to eternal life. Now listen, those who believe that those who believe in Christ will be saved is not what rubs people the wrong way. It's when they hear that only those who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved and go to heaven that they push back with statements like this. Well, that can't be fair. That's not right. That can't be. There can't be only one way. What about... Our culture has been rapidly moving away from any narrow definition of what it takes to get to heaven for some time now. We understand how that has happened. We have watched morality decay and sin abound in our lifetimes, in our culture. We get that our culture was not what it once was with regard to God and Jesus and the Bible. But more disturbingly, we've seen Christians in general, and particularly young evangelical Christians, and when I say evangelical, just to clear up any mud here, I'm talking about professed Christians who hold a high view of Scripture and profess Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So among young evangelical Christians, there is a rapid acceleration away from the belief that only those who believe in Christ will go to heaven. And the pressure that has pushed that acceleration is intense, and it has been for some time. Pressure working against what is viewed as the narrowness, the exclusivity of Christ and His followers' claim that when it comes to heaven and eternal life, He is the way, the truth, and the life. But beyond that, there is an increasing pressure not only to deny the exclusivity of that claim... There's increasing pressure to flat-out renounce the gospel's exclusive claims to truth in general. Research shows, and certainly our personal experiences validate that research, that accommodation to the pressure is the rule rather than, than the exception, and that it is not limited to young people. Listen, we must understand there's so much at stake We're engaged in a war here, beloved. A war against a culture that is diametrically opposed to everything we believe when it comes to morality and religion. We're in a war, and truth is what's at stake. And the prize? Well, the winner gets the right, among other things, to teach our nation's children what to believe. And if you don't see that, you need to get your head out of the sand, church. As it pertains to the subject of religion, the the popular cultural view sees broad-mindedness as a fundamental virtue. It says that to be narrow when it comes to God and truth and morality is judgmental. It's bigoted. It's evil, even. The culture believes that broad-minded thinking is good when it comes to God and religious matters. After all, aren't there many roads to God? Aren't there any number of spiritual Jesus, teachers like Jesus, whom we can follow and yet arrive at the same place? Those who hold to this philosophy rooted in broad-mindedness 
protest loudly, there can't be just one way. Aren't there a lot of ways to get to heaven? Otherwise, it's not fair. But this is an important question because if Jesus is the only way, we need to know that, don't we? And, and if as some say there are a lot of different ways to get to heaven, we need to be aware of that as well. So let me ask you a question that's going to sound overly simplistic on the surface. It's this. Is truth broad or is it by its very definition narrow? Truth is defined as that which is in accordance with fact or reality. So truth is simply telling it like it is. It's the way things are. So I would say to you, church, yes, truth by its very definition is narrow. And it's so important to, to understand and embrace the concept of absolute truth in all areas of life, but especially and including and especially faith and religion, because life has consequences for being wrong. Giving someone the wrong amount of medication can kill them. Having an investment manager give you the wrong monetary advice can drain your resources. Boarding the wrong plane will take you to places that you don't know where to go. But nowhere are the consequences more important than in the area of faith and religion. Forever is a long time to be wrong. Could it be that a great many in our culture promote this philosophy of relativism and broad-mindedness because they so desperately want it to be so? And by that I mean a lot of folks do not want to be to face the reality that there may be some truths that are unalterable and therefore they have a God to whom they're accountable. But simply put, when we consider what is truth, we must see that if there is truth at all, then there are truths that are absolute, unalterable. Truth in virtually every context in which we may find ourselves. If we ignore that basic principle of truth, if we deny the, valid the validity of that principle, we do so to our own peril. We need to remember that Jesus made the claim to be the only way. The religious leaders of His day, the theologians of His day did not make that claim for Him. He made that bold and truthful claim for Himself. From Christ's own lips came the statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But please understand this. When we quote those words of our Lord, many people are highly offended. To unequivocally say there is no other way we can get to heaven. No other way we can approach God. No other way we can be saved except through Jesus Christ is a great affront to many in our world today. And so those words uttered by Christ in John 14 are extremely provocative. It's a long introduction. I get it, but important stuff for us to consider in now our text. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Heavenly Father, again, we're treading on familiar 
territory for us all perhaps in this room I pray today that we'll just be reminded as some truths are lifted up driven home and we motivated Father to understand what's at stake I pray for those here who are still wrestling uh, with this understanding that your son is the only way that today their hearts would be pierced and they come to a realization of what is actually true in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this, this idea of a narrow gate and a narrow road is where Jesus has been heading all along in, in this masterful, this great sermon. And, and He brings the whole message to a climax with, with this idea of a decision to be made, a choice to be made. Two gates, which bring us to two roads which lead us to two destinations, which are inhabited by two different groups of people facing two outcomes. One writer has said that all of life concentrates on man or woman at the crossroads. That's really true. From the time we're old enough to make any kind of decisions on our own, life begins then to be largely about decision-making. We make them every day about everything from the, from the time we go to bed to the time we get up to what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we're going to go, what we're going to do when we get there. We're constantly making decisions in our life. That great American philosopher Yogi Berra once famously quipped, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. You'll get it later. But perhaps Robert Frost, in his classic poem, The Road Not Taken, speaks more eloquently of this process of making important decisions. When he wrote, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. We pick roads all the way through life. And so a very, in a very real sense, life does consist of man or woman at the crossroads, but there's only one all-important crossroad decision that we must make, a decision that determines eternity. That, that decision is the one to which our Lord speaks in these verses, the ultimate choice, the one incredible, inescapable, inevitable issue facing every living soul who's ever drawn a breath is the question of eternal life one moment one brief moment after we slip from this world to the next we will either enter a place grander and more glorious than our imagination can possibly conceive reunited with loved ones finally seeing our Lord Jesus a place where we will live eternally, or, or we will be plunged into a place of torment far more horrific than our darkest dreams. A terrifying place where the suffering will never end. Either way, our eternal destiny will have been forever fixed, eternally unalterable 
C.S. Lewis writes, Every human being is in the process of becoming a noble being, noble beyond imagination, or else, alas, a vile being beyond redemption. He exhorts us to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He's talking about you and I when we're glorified. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Listen here now and think about this. There are no ordinary people. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. So if there's a heaven and a hell, what do we do about it? And if we make the choice that, yes, we believe in heaven and hell, the next question is, of course, how do I get to heaven? Because I sure don't want to go to hell. What's the road to heaven? And so we might could avoid it. We might ask, what could lead me down the road to hell, possibly? Jesus, as we've seen, teaches there's only one way to heaven. And in this brief passage that we're examining today, he, he delivers a clear and concise clarification of the certainty in the teaching of the two ways. Now listen, in a sense, those who claim there must be more than one way are right, because clearly there are many, many ways, but only one way that leads us not to hell, but to heaven. And Jesus illustrates the truth of this as he talks of two gates, two ways, two groups of people, and two eternal destinies. So one choice leads to life. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. One of the gates Jesus describes leads to the way of life. Because of the narrow gate. He says this gate is narrow, it is small, and the way to which it leads is hard, it's narrow. And he also indicates that there are few people who will find it, find this gate that leads to life. Now there can be little doubt that the life he's talking about is eternal life and the, and the way he's describing is the pathway to heaven. So then it's vital that we understand the characteristics of this way. And one of the characteristics of this gate is that it is narrow or small. It's a narrow gate, a small gate, and yet it is a, it's a gate that can be entered. And, of course, that entry is made possible by the death of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross of Calvary. The price He paid the, for the sins provided the, salva the way of salvation for everyone who will place their faith in Him. His resurrection, His defeat of death means all who believe will likewise have defeated death and received forgiveness and eternal life. So even though the way is narrow, it is, it is available to all who believe, and it leads to heaven and eternal life. One writer said, This gate is as narrow as the new birth. And that's true, because only the born again can enter through this gate. Now, the fact that the gate is narrow could also lead us to say that there's nothing or no one we can bring with us. We must come individually. Some commentators illustrate this idea of the narrow gate by representing it as a turnstile. You know what a turnstile is. It's designed so that only one person at a time can go through. You know how they work. Sides are very close. It's got these bars. You push the bar, and you go through. 
When you go somewhere like the zoo, I know I went through one when we were on an underground train. We were traveling in Europe. Um, I've been through one entering a stadium. Every once in a while, you've got to go through a turnstile. And there's a big rush, and people are in a hurry to get in or get on board or get into the stadium. But you have to realize everyone can't go through the turnstile at one time. Each individual must go through by themselves one at a time. That's the way it is with the narrow gate. You don't come to Christ for salvation in a family or in a group. The Jews in Jesus' day were an example. They believed they were in the kingdom. They believed they were all on the same road together. That They all came through together based on their heritage. Abraham, after all, being their father. Based on their Jewish ancestry. Based on the rite of circumcision. They were all in together. But you know what John the Baptist had to say about them when he met them on the River Jordan. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Vipers burning with fire. These people were Jesus' original hearers. They thought they were in because of their heritage and their observance of certain religious rites. And sadly, there are some folks in our day, well, this is hard for me to talk about. There are some folks in our day who think they're on the right road to heaven. They imagine they're on the right road to heaven and they imagine they got on the right road because their parents or their friends are on the right road and because they came to church. Because they came to church with their family and their parents are Christians and we're all here, we're in church, we're together, so we're all on our way to heaven, we're all on the right road. But listen, beloved, it's not enough to stake your claim, as I've heard more than a few state to me boldly, of course I'm a Christian, I was born in America. Of course, I'm a Christian. My family has gone to church all their lives. My daddy used to pastor that church right down the road. But there are no groups coming through the turnstile. We must go through individually. Your faith must be your own. Salvation is individual. Even if many do come for salvation at one time, praise God, as he did in the early church in Acts, thousands, right? Each one had to come alone as through a turnstile. Of course, someone can influence another individual to believe through their testimony, through the sharing of the gospel, but a person's salvation is intensely personal. And that's kind of hard, speaking of a hard road, because of most of our lives, we run around with a group of friends. We're doing things with our family. We're doing what the group does, being part of a group, because there's this innate desire in us, at least in part, to be accepted, to be a part of something outside of ourselves. But then Christ comes along and He says, you're going to have to go through this gate all by yourself. And to the devout Jew in Jesus' day, that meant having to say goodbye to family members, to friends, to their religious support system. 
and stepping out on their own, much like it is for those who leave the Mormon faith. Leave your faith, leave your family. But for all of us, there's a price to pay, a real price. Jesus tells us, whoever leaves father or loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you must enter. You must enter the narrow gate, and you must enter alone. This is the way you must enter the kingdom. We come in as individuals. Your mama can't take you in. Your daddy can't take you in. Your grandparents can't take you in. Your friends can't take you in. We come as individuals. And then you must enter with great difficulty. This way is not only accessed by a small gate. It is itself a hard way. Jesus said that it, this way is hard. It's narrow that leads to life. And that word literally means to press as with grapes. Like you're trying to make juice out of those grapes. To press down hard upon them. A compressed way. So metaphorically, we're talking about trouble, affliction, distress. Now, I'm not surprised that those for whom this idea of the kingdom road being narrow and hard sounds heretical, at least harsh. Because we've often heard that getting saved is easy. You know, all you've got to do is just believe, walk down the aisle, shake hands with the pastor, he'll pray with you, and you're going to heaven. We've made it easy. The only thing is when we get done... Are the people really on the right road? Did they enter through the narrow gate? As I age in my ministry, turned 68 Friday, and you know, called out of retirement to pastor you beloved people. I'm so glad he did call me out. But as I move toward what was inevitably the end of my ministry, I've got some concerns. And at the top of my list is the fact that I fear some of those who I've led to Christ and I've assured of salvation were not genuine in their profession and they've been made to feel secure. I've made them to feel secure in, in what they see as fire insurance. But they never made a change in their lifestyle, never truly surrendered to Christ as Lord. And my fear, too, is that there are people who've attended the churches that I pastored, maybe even some who are here today, who are here often, who have heard it all, but don't know Christ. That's a serious and sobering thing for anyone to consider, much less a pastor. Listen, and listen, none, none of us are where we ought to be, what we ought to be. We're Christians, we're trying, but we aren't what we ought to be. And that too deserves our consideration and our attention. But the reality is that someday we will be what we ought to be, because God's going to finish the work that He promised to, to to do right he's going to he's going to complete that a greater concern than christians who aren't what they ought to be is people who are in the church but are not christians and it's overwhelming to think about individuals going to hell from richland baptist church or any other church it's sobering to contemplate the words of Christ when He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, I know that's somewhat shocking. Probably got your attention. You may disagree with me. And at the risk of overdoing this, let me add that I believe Scripture teaches that it is very, very difficult to be saved. Let me show you why I say that. Jesus says at the end of verse 14, speaking about the narrow gate and the narrow way, that those who find it are what? Few. The implication here is that you're not even going to know it's there unless you're what? Looking for it. Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote down these words of God in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, familiar verse for you. You will seek me and find me, God speaking here, when you seek me with what? With all your heart. I agree with those who say that no one ever slips or falls into the kingdom of God. It's not that easy. But what I've seen, I think what you've seen, if you're honest, is, is a brand of cheap grace, an easy believism that has crept into the church over the last several decades. Dr. Billy Graham, in a 2013 interview, said, It should not be surprising if people believe easily in a God who makes no demands. But that is not the God of the Bible. Satan has cleverly misled people by whispering that they can believe in Jesus Christ without being changed. But this is the devil's lie. To those who say you can have Christ without giving anything up, Satan is deceiving you. In Luke 13, Jesus in verse 22 is going through the towns and villages teaching. He's got His disciples with Him. They're approaching Jerusalem. And during His ministry, it's become apparent to His disciples that not everybody is responding as they imagined that they would. That they, that they would. Just like they did. Excuse me. It's always hard for us to understand why people don't get it. Why don't they want to be saved? Why don't they respond to Christ? And it was for the disciples too. And one of them said to Jesus in verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Easily unnoticed. Easy, easy to understand that this guy had noticed that not many people responded positively. Lord, will only a few be saved? And Jesus said to them, and He gave them the answer to the next question, the one they didn't ask. The answer to the first question was yes. The next question would have been why, to which the answer is, because you must strive to enter to the narrow door, enter in at the narrow gate. And the word strive is the word agonizomai, from which we get to the word agonize, which is used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 of an athlete agonizing to win a victory. And in, first Col in Colossians 4.12 of laboring fervently. Now we're talking about salvation not being easy here. And then again in Paul's letter to Timothy in the idea, chapter 6, verse 12, of fighting. In other words, Jesus says to enter through the narrow gate is agonizing. It's a warfare. It's a fight. There's a fervency that's demanded. There's a passion that's demanded. There's a striving that's demanded. There's a motivated effort to enter at the narrow gate. And there are many, as opposed to few, who will enter in. They will seek to enter and will not be able. Now listen to me. It's, it's difficult to get saved, Jesus says. Number one, because you've got to be seeking. We can't seek apart from His grace. And there may be many who are seeking, but then when they find out what it costs, 
when they see the struggle that it is, that they must strive, agonizomai, to enter in. They're not able because they're not willing to do that. And that's a very strong statement. I get it. Listen, Christianity does not come by simply walking down the aisle. You don't become a Christian in some cheap and easy fashion. In Matthew 11, verse 12, the Bible says, The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. There's a violent aspect to entrance into the kingdom. In Luke 16, 16, the Lord says, Every man who comes into the kingdom forces, presses his way into the kingdom. I know this is not what you hear a lot of preachers say. It might not be what you expected to hear me say today. But this is what Jesus said. The kingdom is for those who seek it with all their hearts. This kingdom is for those who strive, who agonize to enter in. The kingdom is for those whose hearts have been shattered by their sinfulness. The kingdom is for those who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and who long for God to change their life. It's not easy for the people who come along and hope just to... It's not for people, excuse me, who come along and just hope to saunter in and just find Jesus without leaving their old way of life, without a struggle, without persecution, at least on some level. In fact, in John 16, Jesus said, you mark it down right now. In this life, you will have tribulation. It's never easy. It's never easy to become a Christian because you've got Satan and his demons fighting against you. Your own carnality, your own fleshly, earthly desires, not to mention the world. You've got all that to resist, to fight back against. William Hendrickson says, The kingdom then is not for the weaklings, the waverers, and the compromisers. It is not for Balaam's or rich young rulers or pilots or demises. And then he says, It is not won by means of deferred prayers and unfulfilled promises and broken resolutions and hesitant testimonies. Rather, it is for the strong and sturdy like Joseph and Nathan and Elijah and Daniel and Mordecai and Peter and Paul, unless we forget, like Ruth and Deborah and Esther and Lydia. Beloved, I hope you understand that one of Satan's pervasive lies in the world today is that it is easy to become a Christian. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. It's a very narrow gate and the way in which it leads is narrow and difficult. And you go through it all alone. And you go through agonizing all the way over your sinfulness. You have to be broken in your spirit. And I realize that somebody's going to say, Preacher, that sounds like works to me. No. Grace is what makes it possible for you to enter the gate. Grace was purchased for you by Christ at Calvary. Grace came to you when He received the wrath that you deserved. Grace is Him paying the price that we could not pay. The way's narrow, but it's available. Because the Lamb of God was worthy and willing to do what it, was, what it took, what had to be done to atone for your sins and mine, and it was a costly grace. 
And it's grace when God opens your eyes. And it's grace when God awakens your dead spirit. And it's grace when you realize how broken you are. And it's grace when you recognize that you are lost and you need saving. And that you cannot save yourself. That only Christ can. And that's by grace. And He pours grace and grace and more grace into your life to strengthen you for that necessary agonizing involved in entering in. His strength becomes your strength. Jesus makes a wonderful statement. One clinic's wasn't enough. Jesus makes a wonderful statement in Matthew 18, 3, a statement that sums up the attitude one must have in order to enter the kingdom. This is where he says, except you become as a little child, you can't enter the kingdom. Now, what is it that characterizes a little child? Primarily, is it not total dependency? Utter dependency. Augustus Top Lady in that classic hymn, right? Rock of Ages says it well. Not the labors of my hand can fill the law's demands. Couldn't I? Thank you, brother. Uh, pardon me, church. We'll cut this out on the TV broadcast. <laughs> Not the labors of my hands can fill the law's demands. Listen now. You sing it all the time, but have you ever paid attention? Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling but saving faith is not an, just an act of the mind. It's a stripping of the self, a letting go of that which would hold us back and prevent entry through that narrow gate. It is a repentant heart that cries, Lord, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. One choice leads to life. And we're quickly closing here. Another choice leads to destruction. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. And the way is easy, it leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. That word translated destruction is the Greek word apolia. And while destruction is what it means, it does not mean total annihilation. It does not convey the idea that God is causing a person that does not go to heaven to cease to exist. The use here is it refers to the destruction that consists of eternal misery in hell lost to the destiny of hell for all of those who would make the choice to head down this path. And there's some notable characteristics of this way. Let's look at them. One is that it is an easy way, or more accurately, a broad way. And that sounds great to a lot of folks in our culture today. They like things that are broad, easy, if you will. Again, we've made broad a desirable quality. But this is the way the unspiritual mind thinks. This is the way of a worldview which is not rooted in Holy Scripture. This is not the wisdom of, the God, of God. This is the folly of the world. And really the truth is most people embrace this philosophy only when it suits them. I mean, aren't there limits to even the most broad-minded among us? How broad-minded would this person be if her husband decided to cheat on her? 
even if it was just a little bit of cheating. That wouldn't matter. How broad-minded would they be if a thief broke into their home and stole their belongings? I suggest to you, not very. You see, most folks are only broad-minded when it suits their purposes. Whenever an individual wants to indulge their their momentary pleasure of sin for themselves, then they become very broad-minded. This describes the broad way, the easy way. This way has enough room for all of us. The journey down this road requires nothing. You, you can believe anything at all or nothing at all. Any lifestyle is acceptable. Any belief system is valid. After all, those on the broad road think all the paths lead to God or to heaven or to whatever you call it as you describe your version of those things. Another characteristic of this broad way is that it's found by many. In other words, this way is a jam-packed way. It's the way of the masses, and that's one of the hazards. Listen, I get it. The way the crowd is headed can seem right to us. The right way, because so many people have chosen this way, we naturally assume that that many people cannot be wrong. So we jump right in there with them. After all, there's something reassuring about the numbers, about going along with the, with the crowd. But when folks follow this way, they have been deceived. We shouldn't be deceived by the decision of the majority. The broad way may be the crowded way, but that doesn't make it the true way. It only makes it the easy way, and it is a lethal way, a way that leads to eternal death. In Ephesians 6.23, we read that the wages of sin is death. Which is a way of saying that sin always pays off with death. When we head down that broad way, when we head down that easy way, we're heading down a path that can lead to no other destination than eternal damnation. We can listen to the culture and those who claim to follow Christ but do not believe He's the only way to the Father. And we can imagine that their way will someday lead us to heaven. But beloved, it is a lie from Satan, and it has no power to lead us anywhere but straight to hell. The strategy of Satan is to induce us to believe that the eventual destination of those who enter by the broad and easy way is heaven, but he's lied. And if we choose this way, we're choosing not life, but our own destruction. We said as we began that everyone has a decision to make. We can decide to choose the narrow way or the broad way, the easy way. Many, Jesus tells us, will choose the latter. To them, the narrow way is just, well, too narrow. He can't be the only way. Some have great difficulty accepting that there's only one way to heaven, and they make the choice of the broad way. What about you? Which way have you chosen? And listen, if we're on the right road, we have a responsibility to show others the way to it as well. Jeremiah, in chapter 21, verse 8, says, God's message to you is this. Listen carefully. I'm giving you a choice. Life or death. 
which will it be for you? There's only one way. Say there's only one way. And that way is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed whenever we seriously contemplate what's at stake in this decision that we've heard about all of our lives. In this choice, in these gates, in these roads, Father, we're thankful that your Holy Spirit has guided so many of us in this room through the narrow gate, onto the narrow road, to the glories of heaven that await us. What a joy that is for us. We thank you and praise you for that. It's nothing we've done of ourselves. You have done this work in us. Father, I want to pray for those who are here today and they may have never even considered Christ. They're lost. They're on the wrong road. They know they're on the wrong road. Today, you're speaking to their hearts about the right road. You're drawing them to yourself, Father, even as we've sung and preached and prayed. I pray that they'll respond, Father, and come as you are calling them. Father, I pray for those who are here today and have thought, perhaps yet think, that they're on the right road. They prayed to receive your son Jesus at some point. Might have even been baptized at some point. And yet, Father, they know what you know, what perhaps their friends and family in the world doesn't know, that they've not changed anything about the way they live their life. They've not let go of anything of the world. They've made a shallow confession to an eternal God they're destined for hell. I pray that you'll speak to the hearts of those people today and draw them to yourself, that they will come as you are calling them. Father, I pray for those who are looking for a church home. We're grateful for those you have sent us in past weeks. We look forward to you continuing to build your church. And I pray for those who are here today and perhaps have seen today as the day of decision when it comes to uh, planting roots and becoming a part of Richland Baptist Church, making it their home. Father, you move in decisions that need to be made as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray.